Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 76, Athletes or Warriors? Keeping in mind that as the 1930s were a simpler time relative to the lack of technology altering daily lives, sporting events held a much larger place in people's lives. Pride in one's national or local team mattered greatly, and the people enjoyed a good contest, with the winners and losers shaking hands afterwards. But as the Nazis changed so much of Germany's culture and way of life, sports was certainly included in that. Yet this change was only a mean to a sinister end. Having his end game clearly fixed in mind, Hitler passed down the word that physical training was to be a much wider and soon compulsory aspect to the people's lives. And of course, from the get-go, this new wave of physical activity was strongly mixed with military overtones. The first step, under the leadership of Hans von Schammer und Olsten, the Minister of Physical Exercise, was to bring all sports activities under one roof. Next, in October of 1935, all children, boys and girls, were required to participate in games while at school. Also, now all university students had to play some sport during their time in school. So far, no harm, no foul. But then, all male university students were required to learn how to shoot a light rifle. Then, as the Nazis made this their M.O., drip by drip, more activities were added. Soon, professors were complaining that their students were out on the track or in the field too much, that it was affecting their studies. These complaints soon brought a local Nazi official around to have a word with the complainers. Their complaints soon came to a halt. Soon after, employers started noticing that their applicants of late were not of the same caliber as previous students. So they started complaining to their local officials. Those local officials checked with their superiors, then went back to the interviewing personnel. Their complaints then stopped. Again, nothing nefarious was perceived in all this physical activity. It was good for the person and good for the state. So, taking it to the next level, workers started a program titled Kraft durch Freud, Strength Through Joy. The state saw the potential of this and quickly got involved. Soon there were 48 offices opened up, each one with several sub-branches. This program quickly organized sporting events in 350 cities and, with state help, hired thousands of instructors for the various clubs. Workmen throughout Germany, just as their children soon would, sought social and official acceptance by earning the Reich Sports Badge by learning to skate and ski. As for their children, the Hitler Youth Program was not, at first, compulsory, but parents quickly figured out the value of belonging. And honestly, the children themselves wanted to participate, to conform, to challenge themselves. It was, after all, to them, organized playing. Yet, had they not seen it this way, it wouldn't have mattered. Dr. Wilhelm Frick Minister of the Interior, made it quite clear to all civil servants that they were expected to place their children in the Hitler Youth. 
This expectation was then issued to the people of the country's defense forces. As the proficiency book for German youth explained, speaking for the Nazi party, physical training is not the private concern of the individual. The National Socialist Movement orders every German to place his whole self at its service. Your body belongs to your country, since it is your country that you owe your existence. And again, as for the innocent children, they enjoyed their time together, bonding, growing stronger, pushing themselves. But even here, politics was being weaved in. As a message from Hitler himself read to the children, to begin the controlling of their expectations, you are the future, not only of Germany, but the world. Soon mixed in with the children's activities was military sport. Taken out to a nearby field two days a week, the young boys were soon throwing wooden grenades for distance and accuracy, climbing walls and nets and crossing over holes on ropes. Again, to the children, this was play. But as the breadth and depth of all this organized activity made its way outside of Germany, those people could not help but feel concerned for those children. Was this how they, the children, were to spend their childhoods? Mandatory activities, then mandatory competitions, earning medals and rewards, going further and further down the road to becoming a soldier in all but name? The other country's political leaders were equally concerned, but not for the children. Especially when more of the program's details reached them. Children as young as 12 were being taught along with running and jumping, the Horst Vessel song, the anthem of the Nazi party, the Hitler Youth flag song, various slogans. They also had to take a test demonstrating their knowledge of Hitler's life and his struggle, the national holidays of the German people, and Germanism outside of the country, whatever that means. And it meant whatever Berlin wanted it to mean. As the children got older, the expectations of them grew in difficulty, the activities more challenging. At age 15, the youths would participate in target and march practices, which included disc throwing. Also with these, there were tests in map reading, sharpness of vision, and estimation of distance, how to camouflage, and how to take cover. The participants, if that word can be used for something compulsory, were tested at the ages of 11, 16, and 18 for their general aptitude and physical condition. The outcome of all this was, if the state ever needed these young men as soldiers, they would already have a solid idea of who could do what, basically how long it would take the state to turn these young men into full-fledged soldiers. By 1935, the Nazi party, feeling confident enough to no longer need the double talk, put out another booklet that boldly stated what some of the other countries had been speculating. The idea that non-political so-called neutral sportsmen are unthinkable in Nazi Germany. National socialism cannot permit even a single phase of life to remain outside the general organization of the nation. Every athlete in the Third Reich must serve the state. There was even a section for those with more brawn 
than brain. That was basically a question and answer guide in case one was ever questioned about this or that or had doubts. The answers to the questions about the country's problems and their solutions was completely based on Nazi ideology. And as the booklet made clear, there was no, there could be no separation between state and sport. The booklet also pointed out the country's enemies. The Catholics, the Freemasons, and of course the Jews were to be watched out for. The Jews, the booklet made clear, have done nothing in the athletic sphere. As for the Catholics, the Nazis scoffed at the idea that all men are created equal in the sight of God. That's not what natural law, life in general, and history has shown to be true. Besides, the Pope's real objective, the booklet made clear, was to control the entire world through religion, through their churches. No, the German people would fight this attempted enslavement, and their key weapon was their blood. The booklet explains race is blood and spirit. The blood which predominates in the people gives it leadership and direction. In the German people, Nordic blood predominates. The individual has value, significance, justification, and a future only as a member of his race. In essence, the more light Nordic blood that ran through a people's veins, the more powerful they were and destined, almost required, to rule the rest of the weaker world which clearly meant those of darker skin were not meant to rule, but to be ruled. This was their place in the world, along with the Jews and most other non-German Europeans, because they had mixed their blood more. One would think that a booklet like this, not at all hidden from outsiders, would have been enough to have the games taken away from Berlin. But that was not the case. Most observers laughed at such notions. Yes, they were unrealistic and comical, so not taken seriously. That is, until the results of such state practices were observed firsthand. But then it was too late. Yet those in the United States who took the games very seriously posed this question after hearing of some of the booklet's tenets. How were they foreign black athletes going to be treated in Germany? Were they expected to accept second-class status? Once again, the Americans had their dandruff up. About 1,000 New Yorkers converged on a German ship at the docks and ripped down its swastika flag in protest. The U.S. government apologized to the German ambassador, but Germany itself was put on notice. In America, once again, the question was raised and fiercely debated. Should the U.S. participate? Should it not send over its athletes, or at least encourage them not to go? Men and women of means, reputation, and former athletes jumped in on both sides of the argument. Germany knew that if America pulled out, so might Britain, which would probably cause a cascading effect. As the argument grew louder and more serious, it was time for the one man who mattered most in the world of the Olympics to timidly, reluctantly step in. President of the International Olympic Committee, Henri de Bellier-Latour, 
of Belgium, was personally looking forward to the games. It was the same year as his birthday. To his thinking, if there was anything that could reduce the tension between the various countries of Europe and America, it was the coming together for wholesome athletic competition. Still, he had to do something with all this noise about. So, went to Germany to investigate in October of 1935, where he stayed for two days. There he met with Hitler, who gave his assurance that the games and the ideal of the games would be honored and held as they had been held before. That was good enough for the president. Holding a meeting with the press, the president said that he could find nothing to change his opinion that the games should go on in Berlin. Yet he refused to discuss any of the specific questions put forth by the Americans. And when it came to Germany's treatment of Catholics and Jews, the president answered somewhat askanced. Oh, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, did not involve itself in matters of politics of any country. The rebuttal that Germany had most certainly intertwined sports and politics was met with the reply, well, that's a matter of politics. And again, the IOC does not get involved in such things. But before we let Bellier-Latour go for history to judge, it's worth noting that during the summer games, at a dinner, celebrating the Olympic festivities, when the president overheard a rather inane and shallow observation, claiming that, indeed, the games never fail to bring countries together, he replied testily, May God preserve you from your illusions, madam. If you ask me, we shall have war in three years." So, it may be easily argued that he knew what was going on in Nazi Germany the whole time. On the other hand, he was exactly right with his prediction. And as the games are about to begin, it's time to march towards the madness. In the fall of 1935, Germany, feeling the pinch of international tension, not so much swallowed its pride, but rather made a calculating and for them, daring move. Two German lady athletes, Gretel Bergman, a high jumper, and Helen Meyer, competitor with the foil, left Germany when Hitler came to power. Both now lived in the United States, and both had been expelled in absentia from their various sports clubs. Both also had Jewish ancestry, which was enough for the Nazi state to dishonor them. But that fall of 1935, their home country invited them back to represent Germany in the upcoming games. And amazingly, though the why has never been fully discovered, they both said yes. And just like that, much of the wind that was the growing threat by the United States to stay home for the games was taken out of the sails. So when the AAU Amateur Athletic Union met in December for its annual convention, the meeting was anything but convivial. 100,000 protests were lodged against the U.S. going to the games. Arguments ensued, fights broke out on the floor, then a vote was taken. By a narrow margin, the body voted to send its athletes to Berlin. But it was made clear this was in no form an acknowledgement of favor of Nazi Germany's policies. 
as for the majority of American citizens, they were not of the opinion to boycott the games. Rather, their overall mood seemed to be to send their representatives over there, kick the crap out of Hitler's athletes, to show them National Socialism was not all he thought it was. Next to war, this was the best way to beat the great Aryan race on its own turf. And don't forget, everybody, to enter the Harry's giveaway by sending me uh, an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and just put uh, gold handle in the subject line, and I'll group them all together. And I'm just going to wait a couple more weeks to give everybody uh, some more time. I know you're busy, and you probably don't listen to these right away. So just enter as soon as you can, and I'll have my daughter's draw name. And uh, good luck to everyone. Take care. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 77, Let the Games Begin. As for how Britain handled the political storm of Berlin hosting the 1936 Olympic Games, their approach and process was, please forgive me, typically British. After sending over representatives in 1934 and being told that, yes, the Third Reich would observe the Olympic Code, the Britons went home and told their athletes to prepare. And having said as much, they did not feel it would be proper or prudent to rehash the argument or spy on the host country. As for the British athletes, they knew what was going on in Germany, as the members of this relatively small community from the European countries continued communicating with each other. Still, the British Olympic Committee, and it was a well-established fact that this body was far removed from the government, had made up its mind. It watched their American cousins argue the point back and forth, time and again, and probably would have followed suit if the United States had stayed out. But they did not, so the British did not. Just before the Winter Olympics of February 1936 were to start, it seemed that Jupiter, the god of storm, air, and sky, had set himself against the Germans. In the town of Garmisch Pakenkirin in the Bavarian Alps, which was to host the Winter Games, that were really seen as a warm up to the Summer Games, no pun intended, there was just one problem there wasn't enough snow. Everything else was in place. The moderate, humble ski resort was transformed into this modern first class establishment. The ski jump had a tower 142 feet high. When the skiers landed, there would be some 150,000 spectators watching them. The bob run had been completely rebuilt, and large blocks of ice now lined its path. Below, on the floor of the valley, was a new ice stadium, some 100 feet by 200 feet. Again, with enough seating for an unprecedented 12,000 people. What's more, there were 10 soundproof booths for the broadcasters. The entire facility had been tested and retested. There was even a backup course slope on the north side of nearby mountains prepared. Again, everything was perfect, except for a distinct lack of snow on the ground. No one could remember such a state of affairs for their beloved Alps in the last 25 years. 
And before the weather could decide if it would participate in the upcoming games, the German sports officials were then given another problem. The American writer William Shire wrote that not only had the Nazis removed all of the anti-Semitic signs from the area and the areas that led to this place, but that the Germans had taken up all of the best lodgings. Both were true, of course. As for the latter, an argument could be made that they, after all, had built the place, had put out vital resources to do so. Did that not entitle them to take the best of what they had constructed? Either way, the local official of the propaganda ministry had Schreier brought into his office for a good old-fashioned scolding, which was followed up by the entire Nazi press skewering the American. This was an ugly incident that no one wanted to focus on. The festive atmosphere had already begun. Then, thankfully for the Germans, Jupiter came along and gave everyone something else to talk about. On February 5th, six inches of snow fell. Hitler arrived and opened the games the next day. And the snow kept falling, as if to make up for its tepid past. As the games were set to go, tens of thousands packed into the formerly small ski resort of Garmisch. But first, there had to be some showing off by the host country. Everyone does this. Through the lined main street, German military bands rang out their music, which included Nazi party songs. Behind the band were perfect-looking members of the Hitler Youth, Nazi labor battalions, and members, again, with almost perfect physical features, of various German sports clubs. Then came the athletes from 28 countries, in their various uniforms. That is, except for the British. They proudly had no uniforms. Still, most members, besides the black armband, which signified the passing of King George V, he had died just the month before, they all wore his well-remembered outfit from the last time he visited the country a blue wind jacket, and ski trousers of various shades. Once in the stadium, the various teams raised their hands to greet their host, Hitler. But when the athletes lifted their right arm slightly to the side to give the traditional Olympic salute, the locals took this for the formal Nazi salute and went wild with anticipation. Then the Americans entered. Whether this was decided on beforehand, and it probably was, the U.S. athletes simply honored their host with an eyes right. As can be expected, this did not warm the hearts of the watching Germans, who managed a smattering of applause. The Americans then took a turn at feeling snubbed, but continued walking to their designated location. Then Hitler approached the microphone, and opened the games with one sentence. Next, the Olympic flame rose to life. But just as thick as the continually falling snow was the political tension. The Nazi elite had turned out in force. Hitler, 
Garing, Goebbels, Streicher, Frick, all with their sizable staffs. Perhaps they were there to simply witness the games, but more likely that this list of Nazi who's who was meant to stifle anyone from causing trouble. The authorities had already put out the word that any anti-Jewish rhetoric was to be put aside until after the games. This warning was meant for the Germans and foreigners alike. No one was to cause trouble to spoil Germany's show. So all the signs about forbidding Jews were taken down. Nor was there trash talk against the Jews. And extra security was given to the Spanish athletes due to the anger their non-Nordic features may cause. Of all the visiting countries, the Germans anxiously watched the Americans the most. Those months of debates within the United States, whether they should go or not, left the host country frazzled. But now the Americans were here. Everything seemed to be in its proper place. But then came the American press corps, which complained about their too few seats. The Germans not needing this after the debacle with the American Eyes Right fiasco, gave the visitors their seats. Peace was once again established. And perhaps Jupiter really felt bad about the lack of snow earlier, so attempted to make up for it by continually bombarding the valley with more. Footage from the events show a thick blanket always coming down on the heads of the people, whether they were prepared or not. As for the hockey match that got underway between the United States and Germany, sweepers had to be brought out no less than ten times to push away the new fallen snow. The cold temperatures and snow spread throughout Europe, which killed some people and left others stranded. But no one was surprised when the Scandinavians took most of the medals away. Norway, with 15 after all was said and done. Though the host country did come in second, with six medals in total. For the first time, the slalom event, a Norwegian word meaning zigzag, was allowed. The people loved the pace and potential danger. Germany could not help but feel bereft when they did not win the event they argued to have introduced, the unofficial military patrol race, where teams of four soldiers carrying a rifle and a full kit skied 25 kilometers, stopping halfway to shoot at three balloon targets. What's more, not only did the Germans not win the skiing part, Italy did, but they didn't win the shooting aspect either, which went to Austria. As for the British, well, they were just lucky to be there, considering their budget, keep in mind the government stayed well away from the Olympics, was 400 pounds. Still, the island nation was stunned with joy as their 15-year-old figure skater, Cecilia College, took the silver and probably would have won the gold had it not been for her one fall. Yet, that was but a warm-up to the real surprise of the Winter Games. Before the hockey tournament got started, Canada, which had brought home the last four gold medals, protested that two of the British players were not amateurs, and besides, several of the British team were Canadian-born, 
The men were quickly disqualified. However, then the International Ice Hockey Federation discovered that not only the British, but the French team had several Canadians playing for them. The best thing to do, it was decided, was to drop the whole matter and let the teams play as they were. Yet this left a very bad taste in the Canadians' mouth, which they would attempt to settle on the ice. On February 11th, when Britain and Canada met, the game involved very little hockey and very little concern for the puck or the health and welfare of the opposing players. Truth be told, the Canadians started most of the fights, and 15,000 people watched in seats only meant for 12,000 as the game was tied one-to-one until the last 90 seconds. Then Britain scored again to win. The packed-in crowd went wild, cheering the contest in general, but the British more, as word of the Canadians' protest had gotten out before the match. The next day, the high-flying British team took on Germany, but after three periods of extra time, the score stayed tied. Yet this amazing and exhausting match was not witnessed by Hitler. He had to leave and attend a funeral of a Nazi official who had been killed by a Jew in Switzerland. As for his concern over the presence of so many foreigners in Germany, that was forgotten. In a speech sent all over Germany, Hitler shrieked that there marches before our eyes an endless line of murdered National Socialists, assassinated in dastardly fashion. Behind every order is the same power which is responsible for this crime, the hate-inspired influence of our Jewish foes. But this speech did not stop or even slow down the enthusiasm for the games. Besides, the world had heard Hitler give a variation of the speech many times before. The next day, Hitler was back and appeared outwardly calm as he presided over the British team easily handling the Hungarians with a 5-1 to victory. Hitler, duly impressed, well, as impressed as he could be about such things, sent his congratulations to the British team and offered to sign their cards. However, that same afternoon saw a contest between the host hockey team and Canada, which turned out to be, with hindsight, nothing less than a prelude to the coming war. The Canadians were in an ugly mood and had a cunning plan in case they did not win the tournament outright. Elbows, fists, and sticks flew at opponents' heads. Then the crowd started getting into it, which made the officials ask them to remain calm. This was a sporting event, but the crowd did not seem to hear their plea. Then Gehring stepped up to the microphone and asked for calm. Nope. Then Goebbels tried, reminding the locals that the Canadians were Germany's guests, after all. They managed to get through the game, which the Canadians won, 6-2. to two. The next day, the town's favorite, the British team, took to the ice and then took Czechoslovakia to the cleaners, winning five to nothing. It was at this point that Canada saw their dominance fading fast. So the team asked for the winners to be determined by the total number of scored goals. 
hence their beating up on the Germans. This request was rejected out of hand, which left the British shocking themselves and the world to take the gold in hockey. Though Canada did come in second with the silver, the U.S. took home the bronze. The British team was followed back to their lodgings, the people cheering all the way. And even after the team settled down for a well-deserved rest, many people stayed outside their window, continuing to cheer. This was the true Olympic idea manifested. On February 16th, Hitler returned to Garmisch to close the games. Never before had so many people been to the Alps at one time. The games were hailed as a huge success. Everyone was happy. There had been no political tension, and Germany's organization had paid off with a smooth series of contests. Of course, the closing ceremonies were just as militaristic as the opening, if not more so. On the far side of the ski stadium, opposite of the people, perfectly lined up, was an army regiment. Although the medals were handed out by Dr. Ritter von Halt, a civilian, Though when he did give a medal, a Krupp piece of artillery sounded out, the medal for the unofficial military patrol race was given by Bloomberg, the war minister. Germany had been hoping this would be the passing of the medals from one German to another. When darkness came, the Olympic flame was put out. Then suddenly, ten large anti-aircraft searchlights burst forth into the sky, making awe-inspiring patterns. Then fireworks were shot up. The Olympic flag was lowered and removed by six skiers, carried away horizontally. Greetings, everyone. So I just want to apologize, let's see here, for the garbage truck that went by, the lawn mowing going on, my nephew jumping up and down on the floor above. I'm on vacation in Savo, North Carolina. So I just wanted to get this out to you before the end of the month. Um, so again, um, sorry for all the background noise, but I think you could hear everything okay. So again, thank you, and I'll see you soon with the next episode. Take care, everyone.